Hello, third service. Are you all excited to be in God's house? I was telling the previous two services that we've grown so much that I'm at the point now to where I don't recognize as many faces. That's a good thing, though, because that means the word of God is being spread. Amen? It's a fantastic thing. See, I'm horrible with names, but I don't forget faces. And I pray and encourage you to get to know one another. One of the best pieces of advice one of my seminary professors had given me was he had told me to invest in relationships. Now, I didn't listen to him until many years later, but now I really appreciate and value the bonds that God has forged in relationships that I've been able to establish here at our church. Amen. So I encourage you to do the same. And that's not even part of the message. So we're about to embark on a two-part mini-sermon series. Today we're going to be covering the symptoms involved with the topic. And then next week we'll be dealing with the remedy, singular. The title of today's message is, Am I the Problem? Now, I'm sure many of you are thinking, Brother Jamie, is that a rhetorical question? Or is that possibly a trick question? You might be thinking, of course I'm the problem. I know that. But do you really know? I mean, do you really know that you are the problem? Let me ask you this. If a speck of sawdust and a plank of wood was in a fight for your attention, who do you think would win? And yes, this is a trick question. Anyone? Sawdust? Anyone else? Plank of wood? Yeah, plank of wood? Speck of sawdust? Plank of wood. Scripture tells us that our attention would be practically devoted to the speck of sawdust. The question is, why? Do you understand? Can you see why the speck of sawdust draws our attention so much? Now, if the plank of wood and the speck of sawdust was in a fist fight, my money's on the plank of wood. But fighting for our attention, that's a totally different matter. Today, we're going to be talking about pride and how elusive it is and the fact that it permeates us in ways that we don't even realize. Are you ready? Are you sure you're ready? All right. So one of the things about pride that I appreciate is the fact that it has so much duality. It can be both quiet and loud at the same time. It can be both obnoxious and subtle at the same time. It can be clear and present and hidden at the same time. But can you see it? Number one, 
the problem of pride. When we look at the Bible, when we pull back in full view of the running narrative from Genesis to Revelation, we come to an inescapable conclusion. And that is, we are our own worst enemy. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, there are pages and pages and pages in scripture that warn us of things not to do, of ways to check our behavioral pattern. But do we listen? No, we don't. We could see the speed limit posted, 65 miles an hour. But I got to get to work. So 85 it is. And then we have the audacity to get mad when we get pulled over at the police officer for doing his job. And not only that, we do the same thing the day after. We are our own worst enemy. Now understand this, we do have a formidable foe in Satan, who scripture identifies as our accuser. And what else? our adversary. But scripture also says that his effectiveness as our enemy is predicated on a human condition deep within our hearts, and that is pride. Now, there are two kinds of pride. There's the healthy and the unhealthy. The healthy is when we esteem, our, when we esteem something or someone with honor. That's the healthy pride. But that's not what we're talking about. No, no, no. What we're talking about is when we esteem ourselves as superior. When we put ourselves on a pedestal as if everything is about us. But the truth is, the reality is, is that every single one of us was born into a sinful condition and is in desperate need of God's forgiveness, his mercy, and his grace. Amen? Amen. We need to let go because there's no room for boasting in ourselves or living under the false premise that we are self-sufficient or fine apart from him. Anything to the contrary is pride, and it will destroy us faster than anything else. Amen? Amen. The scripture is filled with sad examples of this, particularly when we look at the letter Jesus had written to the church of Laodicea in the book of Revelation. Turn with me in your Bibles to chapter 3, verse 17. Jesus says to them, because you say, I am rich, ding, it goes further, have become wealthy, ding, and because of that, have need of nothing. Now, let's pause there for a quick second. Isn't it fascinating at how we place so much emphasis on money that we seem to think that depending on what's in our bank account determines our level of security. 
once it's reached a certain level, I'm good. I don't need anything else. I'm good. I'm fine. But answer me this. Can your money go to heaven with you? Can it go to hell with you? Can it save your souls? Then why do we place so much emphasis on it? Because here's the catch. The Lysodicians lived over 2,000 years ago. But we do the same thing here today. One of the biggest lessons that history teaches us is what? It repeats itself. We are our own worst enemies. Do you see that you are the problem? This church was on the verge of collapse because it had collectively succumbed to spiritual pride. Because Jesus goes on to say in that same verse, and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. They believed they had arrived to the point of self-sufficiency. But we see how Jesus described how they actually were. The pride blinded the Lacedaemonians to their condition, which is why pride is so lethal. It distorts our perception to see the truth, which sets us free. As a matter of fact, in the Gospel of John, chapter 8, when Jesus told some Jewish leaders that the truth would set them free, they demonstrated their pride by declaring that they are descendants of Abraham and have never, ever been in bondage. Now, if you know anything about Jewish history, you know that they have been in bondage many times. As a matter of fact, during this conversation, they were under Roman occupation, but they didn't see it. Pride had blinded them to the reality that everyone else could clearly see. Plank of wood, speck of sawdust. Are you with me? The truth is, is we're no different. We're not. We are no different. Pride will turn us into our own worst enemy if we let it. May we grow close to Jesus, who reminds us of our unending need for him and whose very presence protects us from the power of pride. Amen? Amen. Number two, the poison of pride. When you think about, about poison, what would you say is the primary point for its usage? Anyone? Why would we use poison? To kill? Wow, you guys went to the extreme real quick. I was thinking more in a progressive fashion to hurt, harm, and then possibly kill. But man, okay. Well, you're absolutely right. If you add poison to a drink or mix it in food, the individual or the individuals consuming that product will be hurt, harmed, or possibly killed. Family pride is synonymous with poison. Did you know that? If you add pride to a relationship, what happens? If you're unwilling to say, I'm sorry, 
if you're unwilling to even say thank you, if you're unwilling to admit that you were wrong, even when you know you were wrong, you hurt, harm, or possibly destroy the relationship. Amen? Amen. Let's talk about another form of pride. And right now, I'd like to focus on my men. I'm not the head pastor, so I can go here. (laughs) My men. We're going to address specifically our worship in the form of praise. Because I watch you. I see you. I see how you have the tendency to present yourself in God's house. Now, first and foremost, I need you to understand I love you. And I'm expressing this to you because I love you. Not only that, I have been exactly where you are and possibly worse. But I see you walk into God's house as if it's your house. When it comes time to praise him, when the worship team is on stage attempting to usher us into God's presence, I see your posture. Hands in your pockets. An expression of disinterest. The unwillingness to sing. Why? I'm too cool for that. Nah. Men don't don't need to sing. We'll leave the ladies for that. Nah, I'm good. Sound familiar? Does it look familiar? I'm just being honest with you, okay? You have to understand where you are. You have to understand your position and the fact that you are hindering not only yourself, but the congregation from experiencing the manifest presence of God. What I mean by that is God has to, he expresses himself omnipotently, where he's all present at all times. Yes, that's true. But his manifest presence is when we can actually physically with our senses feel his presence. But he won't do that in a place where he's not honored. He will not do that. So when we present ourselves to him as if, again, this is our house, how do you think he's going to respond? Pride. Men, my men, my brothers, we have been called by the king of kings to lead our houses. Not in a way that we think, but the way that he commands. So it's not up to us. Set your pride aside. What you deem to be a priority in your house, the rest of the house does the same. It starts with you. But when we drop the ball, the women have to pick it up. And I see it all over them. It shouldn't be that way. We have to lead the charge. So I'm encouraging you. Amen? Because like I said earlier, I was just like you. 
Back when Foundation first started over 20 years ago, we started out in the middle school, in Bastrop Middle School. Only a few are left from way back then, but the Chris, my Twinkie back there. And I used to purposefully, intentionally show up for service, and we only had one back then, late at the very end when I knew the worship team was going off stage. Why? Because I didn't like the songs. They weren't what I was used to. So I wasn't trying to sing. I had to repent. Here at Foundation, we're so blessed. We are. We have literally the lyrics to the song on screen for us. My men, even if you don't like the song, which I understand, consider the lyrics. Focus on the lyrics and offer them in worship, in adoration to your king. Don't worry about who's beside you. Focus on your king and let it show in your body. Amen? Yes. Amen. Pride has its way of weaving itself into, into our lives as a byproduct of culture. And we have to be able to see that. So we're going to talk about another version of pride where I'm going to gently approach our women. I'm sweating already. I mean, Bring this closer. <laughs> so in the book of Genesis, chapter 39, verses 6 through 20, what you see on screen is a paraphrased version of this. And I did that for time's sake, but I encourage you, by all means, read this for yourselves in your Bible. The Bible says, now Joseph was well-built and handsome, and after a while his master's wife took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. But he refused. One day he went into the house to attend to his duties, and none of the household servants was inside. She caught him by his cloak and said, come to bed with me. But he left his cloak in her hand and ran out of the house. When she saw that he had left his cloak in her hand and run out of the house, she called her household servants. Look, she said to them, this Hebrew has been brought to us to make sport of us. He came in here to sleep with me, but I screamed. When he heard me scream for help, he left his cloak beside me and ran out of the house. When his master heard the story, his wife told, told him, saying, this is how your slave treated me. He burned with anger. Joseph's master took him and put him in prison, the place where the king's prisoners were confined. Have you ever heard the expression, hell have no fury, like a woman scorned? <laughs> I had heard that many times, so I was curious where it came from. It's a quote from William William Concreve's play, The Morning Bride. But if you ask me, I think the inspiration came from Genesis 39. I mean, seriously, you could, you could actually maybe see a movie made from this. 
In the passage we just read, we see the sinful wrath of a woman who'd been rejected. To be clear, women women aren't more prone to vengefulness than men. Most of them. Sinful behavior has nothing to do with gender and everything to do with pride. It's the root cause of all sin. Think about it. Pride led Adam and Eve to their disobedience. Pride led Cain to Abel's murder. Pride led Joseph's brothers to selling him into slavery. And here we have the hurt pride of Potiphar's wife, which led her to falsely accuse Joseph, ruin his reputation, and have him put in prison. Family pride is the ugliest thing on earth. It deifies self while dehumanizing everyone else. And it's it's the complete opposite of who God is. How do we know this? Well, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 through 8, and I need you to really feel this with your heart. The Bible says, Jesus, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. That is like the epitome of what humility is. I need you to really get your heart around this. Pride is also the opposite of who God created us to be because we were made in his image and therefore were created to reflect his character qualities, and nature. Pride is the perversion of all godliness. Proverbs chapter 21 verse says it's the lamp of the wicked. Now back to Joseph. If the rightful punishment for his crime was death, why did Potiphar send him to prison? It's believed he was lenient because he didn't quite believe his wife's story and felt It was best to hush up a scandal. The transfer of Joseph from the house to the adjoining prison would be quietly managed, and then no more need be said of the ugly business. Why did he choose to transfer Joseph to the prison when no one could see it? Anyone? Pride, exactly, pride. He didn't want anyone to see him, his family, or his personal life as anything other than perfect. Sound familiar? He was living that um, highlight real type of life that we see on uh, social media long before we were. Amen? He was focused on his projected image. And what about Joseph? Well, he was clothed in humility throughout this entire ordeal. He didn't let pride lead him to sinning against God, himself, his master, or even his master's wife. Instead, he fled from sin. Now, let's take a moment to contemplate this. 
He fled from sin. This is something we can all learn from. I'd like to think that when Potiphar's wife made her pass at Joseph, there was an, an immediate Joseph-sized hole through the door to the entrance of that place. He didn't play around. He didn't flirt with the opportunity. He just ran. We need to exercise self-control and discipline like Joseph did. Amen? Because I know if you're like me, we have the tendency to say, ah, maybe I can. No, I better not. Maybe. Instead, he ran. So scripture tells us that he fled from sin. Amen? Remain humble and obedient to God and loyal to the man God put in authority over him. And even though he was sent to prison, God honored his obedience and humility. He wasn't put to death. And God prospered him and saved many through him. Amen? Amen. Stay with me. Number three, the first will be last. The Bible says in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 12, haughtiness goes before destruction. Humility precedes honor. I'm going to give you a little bit of my testimony now. When I graduated from high school, I received a basketball scholarship to a Division I school in Louisiana. Now, back then, it was a pretty big thing. Most people didn't get basketball scholarships from this area because it was primarily a basketball, I mean, a football area. And I was the first in probably over 20 years getting a, a, a full ride to a D1 school from Bastrop. So back then, if you were to ask anyone, who was sort of the top five to 10 players in Central Texas, my name should come up. And this was way back in the day, okay? <laughs> so I got a Division I, I got a scholarship to a Division I school. I get there, things didn't quite turn out like I thought it would, so I decided to transfer to a Division II school up in Abilene, Texas. The process of going from a Division I school to a Division II school had my head even bigger than it already was. I thought I was gonna to get to this Division II school and smash. I was about to take over, family. So when I got there, I told the person who was playing my position, who started the year before, I said, hey man, go ahead and get ready to ride the bench. I'm taking your spot, it now belongs to me. We also had an All-American power forward, first team. I approached him and said, hey man, your time in the limelight has passed. Jamie's here. <laughs> Jamie is here. And so the season before, they had missed the playoffs by like two games. I said, hey guys, don't worry, I'll fix that. Jump on my back, we got this. Better yet, I got this. I told them that once I was eligible to play, that if I didn't start, I was gonna quit. That I was going to deprive them of the opportunity to reach the promised land if I didn't start. I mean, I was terrible. I was terrible. So the first game rolls around to which I'm eligible. I don't start. The second game rolls around. I still don't start. Then finally, the third game comes and coach says, Savannah, you're starting. 
But listen, when you get out there, I want you to play hard. I want to see any of this silky smooth stuff. So I get into the game. Family, I shoot the ball every single time I touch it. Now, to my credit, I made every shot. For this particular game, I scored like nine points in like 35 seconds. I thought I was on fire. Within the next minute, coach pulls me out. I'm thinking, what is the deal? And we were winning too. I was like, what's the deal? I'm thinking, okay, maybe don't give me a, give me a breather. Sure, okay. Minutes tick by and by. I don't get back into the game. And I'm thinking, what in the heck is happening here? Don't you want to win? It was all about me. I was choosing to forsake anything that he said about running the offense and playing the way that he wanted me to play due to my pride. It got worse. I was still talking trash. And see, as I was saying earlier, the subtleties involved with pride. I was a type of player who was subtle with my arrogance. See, nowadays you might see players who might score a basket and they'll do this kind of gesture, indicating that the person guarding them was too small or too little. That wasn't me, that was too overt. I was subtle. What I would do is read the scouting report and see who's gonna be guarding me. And what I would do was approach that person before the game. Number 35, you guarding me? Okay, welcome to hell. You better buckle up. That's what I would do, I'm, I'm being serious with you. It was like that. And as time progressed, my time on the court got smaller and smaller. I was unwilling to bend because of my pride. Does that sound haughty to you? Just a little bit? Perhaps a lot. The word haughty in the Hebrew is gabach. And in the context that Solomon uses it in the scripture we just read, means to exalt yourself. To lift yourself up, to make yourself higher than others. It's an act of pride. Does that not sound like me? Amen? It's an act whereby one puts himself above everyone else. And Proverbs is full of statements just like this one. Proverbs chapter 11, verse 2 says, Pride leads to disgrace, but with humility comes wisdom. Proverbs chapter 15, verse 33, Fear of the Lord teaches wisdom. Humility precedes honor. Proverbs chapter 16, verse 18, Pride goes before destruction and haughtiness before a fall. Proverbs chapter 29, verse 23. Pride ends in humiliation while humility brings honor. The unwillingness that I expressed for bending, for making the team revolve around planet Jamie was huge. It was huge. Family, a heart full of pride reaps destruction. 
It reaps isolation, pain, and humiliation. Why? Because when we elevate ourselves above others, when we put ourselves on a high platform, everyone sees us fall. I had to eat my words. And sitting on the bench was so humiliating. I had never done that in my life. I was accustomed to all of my previous coaches giving me what's called the green light. I could shoot whenever I felt the need. But in this system with this coach, that wasn't the case. And I even held him responsible for holding me back. And it took literally years for me to forgive him. I was like, man, this guy cost me millions of, I could be in the NBA. I should be in the NBA. But he stopped me. Do you see how pride's working there? Are you getting your hands around what I'm talking about? Amen? And we also see these teachings with Jesus in terms of humbling ourselves. Things like the first will be last and the last will be first. To those who exalt themselves will be humbled. To those who humble themselves will be, exhaust, be exalted. Amen? Even to those who, whoever is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. John the Baptist, who Jesus says, of all who ever lived, none is greater. We can clearly see that humility is the distinguishing mark of the citizens of God's kingdom. And this is such an impactful topic for me. As you can hear in, my, in, the, in the portion of my testimony that I shared with you, how much I struggled with this and still do. I wasn't willing to put in the effort and humble myself to be worthy of the title good teammate. I wasn't. And I understand that. But now I want to be worthy of the title child of God. Amen? I like how the writer Andrew Murray puts it. He once wrote that pride must die in you or nothing of heaven can live in you. Number four, what does this world have to offer? The Bible says in 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 16, do not love this world nor the things it offers you. For when you love the world, you do not have the love of the Father in you. For the world offers only a craving for physical pleasure, a craving for everything we see, and a pride in our achievements and possessions. These are not from the Father, but are from this world. I was born and raised in Southern California, and I am a die-hard Lakers fan. Through the awesome championship seasons to the lowly, poor losing seasons, I love my team. Being a born and bred Lakers fan, I am programmed to dislike the Boston Celtics and the San Antonio Spurs. It is impossible for me to harbor anything but rivalry towards them. If anyone's a Celtic fan or a sorry Spurs fan, 
They are clearly not really from Southern California. In the text we just read, the Apostle John implores us not to love the world. He takes it a step further and makes it clear that just like there is no way I can be a Celtic or Spurs fan, because I'm from Southern California, if the love of God is in me, then there is no way I can love this world or the things it offers me. Are you getting the connection? When I read this text, I began to ask myself, what does the world have to offer? As I pondered the possibilities, I began thinking about or imagining myself what it would have been like to be with Jesus as described in Matthew chapter 4. This is where the devil tempts him with all of the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And then I thought, hmm, all their glory. What does the world have to offer me? So I started fantasizing about all the things that I could ever desire. Tell me if this sounds familiar. Riches, ding! Power, celebrity, fame, the perfect Herculean physique, the ability to eat the finest meats and cheeses the world has to offer, a house full of Jordans, Caps, big TVs, and the latest and greatest pieces of tech. Am I the only one? Oh, come on now. You're telling, you know what? Okay. Okay. Then I realized that my greatest earthly desires, which all stem from pride, keep me from glorifying the Lord and living and walking like Jesus. That's what pride does. It distorts our perception of reality. In fact, they make us an enemy of the cross of Christ. That is not where I want to be. Amen? As the Apostle Paul tells us in Philippians chapter 3, verse 19, their destiny is destruction. Their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their minds are set on earthly things. That's what the world offers. This is what love of the world leads to, destruction. You see, the world deceives me into making an idol of myself and my desires to self-glorification and self-gratification. It feeds me a constant drip of the poison of pride that we talked about earlier. Remember that? What does, what does poison do? Hurt, harm, destroy. Constantly getting fed a drip of that. It's like a car dealer who sells you a lemon disguised as a Lamborghini which you come to realize, hopefully sooner than later, that, the th that what the things of this world has to offer you will lead you broke down, stranded and abandoned, and empty on the side of the road. It will not bring you fulfillment. It will not bring you joy, 
rest, or peace. Only a relationship with Jesus can do that. A genuine, authentic relationship with our King. Amen? If we truly love God, we will seek his kingdom and his righteousness. We will take up our cross and walk with Jesus. We will not be conformed to the patterns and the customs of this world. Instead, we'll be transformed by the renewing of our minds. Nor will we lift our souls to another not even if all the kingdoms of this world and their glory are offered to us. Number five, who is the greatest in the kingdom? Jesus says in Matthew chapter 18, verse four, therefore, whoever humbles himself as this little child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is the ultimate script flipper. Wouldn't you say that we are our own self-certified experts on life? Who says that they're not? We are that way until Jesus shows up on the scene. And he shows us what we once thought was right is actually wrong. What we believe to have been up was actually down. And the Bible is studded with all these pivotal points, these pivot points where our thought process, our perception is rotated and recalibrated. And we see one here in Matthew 18. In context, the disciples who have been walking, living shoulder to shoulder with Jesus for months had began to debate over which one of them would be the greatest in the kingdom. Are you thinking about that scene in The Chosen in season four when they're all huddled around the fire arguing amongst themselves about who's the greatest and Jesus is sitting in the distance shaking his head? I can totally see me and Brother Jerry arguing, Pastor Chris loves me more. He gives me more responsibility. Man, you better sit down. I can totally see it. I think we can all identify with their perspective, whether it's in the boardroom, in the classroom, whether it's on the playing field, on the court, or perhaps even at church, the desire to be better than the rest is there. And I understand that undoubtedly, the disciples' image of what's better, I can understand what that looks like because it was taught to them by their culture, not by scripture, not by what they were learning in their time with Jesus, which was why he was so frustrated. They weren't getting it. We weren't getting it. Am I the problem? Are you beginning to see, church? So Jesus flips the script on them and brings before them a child and basically says to them, this is what greatness looks like in my kingdom. Can you imagine their minds being blown? And them looking at Jesus like he's crazy? What is it about a child that's so great? Well, ironically, it's what a child doesn't have that makes them great. They don't come with the baggage of self-sufficiency and pride that we tend to acquire over time. 
In the original Greek text, this child was between the age of an infant to a toddler. A child at that age has no, self, no sense of self-sufficiency and is not prideful. It is in complete awareness that it is in utter need for mom and dad for everything. Jesus was telling these calloused men that they need to grow young again, to walk in childlike humility, to understand that they are utterly helpless for everything without their heavenly father. And the same is true for us, family. The same is true for us. We need to grow young, no boasting, no bragging, but to be completely humbled by the reality that we too are utterly helpless without our heavenly father. Our greatness in God's kingdom is measured by our humility. Amen? Amen. Number six, humble pie. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 23, verse 13, but woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. For neither you go in yourselves, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Picture this. A young woman chooses to join her first prayer group. She was nervous, her palms damp. She had been raised in an environment where group prayer meant saying grace at mealtime. In her experience, people prayed for one another, not with one another. She took her seat at the table filled with three women, all veterans of group prayer meetings. Suddenly, like a racehorse set free from the gate, one woman charges forth. Minutes tick by and by. The young woman sits stone-faced as she listens to the flowery phrases and archaic language of the prayer veteran. Once the dust settles, the newcomer offers her own prayer, which to her sounds terribly stiff and awkward compared to the one before. After the meeting, the young lady is escorted to her car by the older woman. She begins to confide in her about how uneasy she was with praying aloud. The older woman smiles at her and says, don't worry, one day your prayers will be as strong as mine. See you next time. Sadly, there was not a next time. The young lady did not return. Although the prayer language of the older woman was impressive, her conversation afterwards was so much less so. So much less so. Her comments lacked love and encouragement. Rather than obeying God's command to be holy as I am holy, she imparted more of a holier-than-thou attitude. Jesus warns against this sanctimonious attitude in the verse we just read, but also in his Sermon on the Mount. There he cautioned in Matthew chapter 6, when you pray, don't be like the hypocrites who love to pray publicly on street corners and in the synagogues where everyone can see them. I tell you the truth. That is all the reward they'll ever get. In other words, our prayer shouldn't aim for earthly rewards. 
impressing people, but heavenly ones pleasing God. Not only does showboating prayer invite a greater judgment from God, but we run the risk of damaging our witness by alienating others. God wants us to pray together, to encourage one another, because group prayer welcomes the Holy Spirit in ways like revival and healings. So rather than using prayer to show what you know, allow the Spirit room to help you grow. Amen? As you speak, pray the promises of God with all of your heart. It will be to God a joyful sound. And his house will be called what we see in Isaiah 56, a house of prayer for all his people. Number seven, last point. Are you still with me? All right, last point. See him as something. The Bible says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 3, if anyone think himself to be something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Nothing will derail a person's spiritual growth more than an attitude of self-righteous pride. The moment we think we are superior to anyone, when we presume we have more value than others. Family, we do something to ourselves that all the combined spiritual forces of darkness can never do. We put ourselves in the position that God cannot and will not bless. Am I the problem? God has made it clear that he opposes the proud in Psalms 138, verse 6, but also in Proverbs chapter 3, verse 34. Now, if you might be thinking, well, that's Old Testament language. He repeats it twice in the New Testament in James chapter 4, verse 6, and also in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5. Let's take it a step further. If you might be thinking, well, there's something special inside of me that I have to boast about and offer. Jesus shuts that down as well. When he declares in John chapter 15, verse 5, that we can do nothing apart from him. Are you seeing the complete dependency on our Savior King? If one thing is clear in this life, it's this. Pride has no place among God's people. And when or if we think otherwise, we are simply dwelling in a state of self-deception. Again, this attitude acts as sort of a spiritual prison, bringing an abrupt halt to our freedom to grow in God. Now, if your hearts work anything like mine, and I'm willing to bet they do. You might be thinking, well, it's a good thing. I'm not guilty of pride like so many other people. (laughs) Wait, can you see it? Speck of sawdust, plank of wood, 
can you see it? Can you see how invasively intrusive pride can be? It's lurking around every corner and ready to lunge at us from so many different directions. We can be prideful about not being proud. It's the truth. Yet as formidable a foe as pride is, we can't dwell in the valley of defeat. We need to understand the Lord is greater than, power, than pride's power. And, he's, and he is for us overcoming it. It's a battle we can win, but only by the power of his grace. God wouldn't command us to be victorious if that wasn't possible. Amen? And we're, again, we're going to dig further into this next week, so stay with me. But here's how we're going to end today's message. As we begin to prepare our hearts for, commun for communion. Now, how do we win the war with pride? By having the proper perspective. By looking at the example set before us by King Jesus. And making sure that we are able to recognize the power of pride, the poison of pride. If we focus on other people and measure ourselves against them, we'll begin to think of ourselves as something. But if we focus on the sinless son of God who suffered and died on account of our guilt before God, we will see him as something and ourselves as nothing in comparison. Amen? Amen? Family, don't get distracted. Keep your spiritual eyes on Jesus with laser focus. And you will see both him and you as you should. Amen? As we're about to take communion and we begin to think about the, the level of, of impact that pride is having right now in our lives, may we surrender that to our King. May we humble ourselves before his feet and request his control, his countenance over everything that we do. Thank you, Lord, for the body that was broken for my sins. For your precious blood that sealed the covenant once and forever. Amen. Thank you, third service. Have a blessed Sunday. I love you.